I'll invite you to take your Bibles out and turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1. I'll be saying that a lot this year. Turn to the book of Exodus as we begin a brand new series, verse-by-verse expositional series through the 40 chapters of this hefty Old Testament book, the book of Exodus, and we anticipate it will take us all year long to go through. Uh, I've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, and so we're going to get right to it. Um, Before we dive into chapter one, though, I think it would be helpful for us to get our bearings with regard to the book of Exodus. This is kind of an introductory to the whole series that we're going to study through uh, in this year. Um, There's several observations I want to make that this is going to kind of serve as interpretive grid through which we seek to understand and apply the truths that we're going to learn in the book of Exodus. As we study the book of Exodus, the first thing you need to know is that Exodus is a fulfillment of Genesis promises. Here's something interesting. The first word in Hebrew in the book of Exodus is the word and, and. Many of you will remember your English teachers telling you not to begin a sentence with a conjunction with the word and. Moses begins the book of Exodus with the word and. It's not displayed in the ESV translation in the King James and the New American Standard. It's translated as now, but this is a conjunction. Conjunction, junction, what's your function, right? A conjunction joins two thoughts together. And so really what we need to understand about the book of Exodus is it is a continuation of the book of Genesis. When the book of Genesis closes at the end of chapter 50, you turn the page to chapter one of the book of Exodus, and it says, and, and then the story continues. Therefore, I think it would be helpful for us on the front end to just briefly review the storyline of the book of Genesis that previews what we're going to study this year in the book of Exodus. You all know the story of Genesis begins in chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created God is our creator. He created everything that exists. And the apex, the pinnacle of God's creation was humanity, humankind, Adam and Eve. He created in his image with a soul bearing his image to image forth his character and his nature. But we also know what happened in the first chapters of Genesis in chapter three, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And as Bryce put it last week, they committed cosmic treason against God. This is the fall. And following the fall, you have sin infecting not just Adam and Eve, their children, their descendants, and the entire planet. Fast forward to chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Genesis, you have sin completely dominating humanity. And so God determines to judge humanity through what? Through the flood. And you have Noah, and you have the ark, and you have the judgment of the floodwaters coming upon the earth. You move to chapter 12, and this is where the story really begins to to fine-tune into focus. It's the call of Abram. God goes to Abram unilaterally, and he calls Abram to come out and to be his follower, to move to a land that he's going to show him. And then following Abram, the rest of the book of Genesis, from chapter 12 on to chapter 50, follows Abraham and his descendants, his son, his grandson, and finally his great-grandson, Joseph. Some of the promises that we see God give Abram in the book of Genesis, uh, we will see fulfilled in the book of Exodus. For instance, in Genesis chapter 12, God told Abram that he was going to make of him a great nation. 
Now, at the time, it was just Abram and Sarai. There were no children and obviously, therefore, no grandchildren, just the two of them in their old age. And God says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And you moved 400 years later to the book of Exodus. And what? Israel, the descendants of Abraham, are a great nation. They're in bondage and captivity in Egypt, but they are a great nation. In chapter 15, verse 13, you have this promise. It says, then the Lord said to Abram, Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. You move forward to Genesis chapter 17, verse 8, and God told Abram that he would give his descendants the land where they were sojourning. At the time, they were just kind of camping out. They just had their tent set up, but God made a promise. I'm going to give you the land as your everlasting possession to your descendants. These are just a few of the promises that are made to Abram and his descendants in Genesis that begin to find their fulfillment in the book of Exodus. So again, the promises of Genesis find their fulfillment in the book of Exodus. But here's what you need to know. The ultimate fulfillment of the promise of God to Abram and his descendants are ultimately fulfilled, not in Exodus, they're fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the final and the ultimate and the complete fulfillment of all of God's promises. Listen, God is a God who keeps his promises. And we'll see that in the book of Exodus. Here's the second thing about Exodus. Exodus is the history of all God's people Exodus is not only or even primarily about the Hebrew people. It's not only or even primarily about the descendants, the ethnic descendants of Abraham. The book of Exodus is a history of all God's people. Therefore, when we read, when we study, when we think about the truths in Exodus, the story of Exodus, guess whose history we're reading? We're reading our history. If you are a part of the covenant people of God, the book of Exodus is your history. And that's what we're going to be studying together. That cannot be overstated. Our children know this. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Are you one of them? Yes, and so am I. We're all Father Abraham's children. These promises and this history is our history. And the reason I stress that is because if you only view the book of Exodus as the history of an ancient Near East people in a land far away in a time long ago, you will miss the bottom line point within the context of the entire Bible. And that is, this is a true story about God sending a deliverer to people in bondage. Do any of us need that? We all need that. This is a story about Jesus's rescue, deliverance of his covenant people. Here's the next point, and this point really relates to the previous two. Exodus is a story about one main person. And guess what? That main person is not Moses. That main person in the story is not even Pharaoh. And I probably don't need to say this, but some might need to hear it. That main person in the story of Exodus is not even you. The main person in the story of Exodus is Jesus. If you'll remember a year and a half ago, when we were just on our trek through the gospel of John, we made our way to chapter five, and we read this in John chapter five. Jesus said this to the religious leaders, 
to the people who studied the Torah, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, including Exodus, Jesus said this about Exodus. You, religious leaders, you scholars, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. What is Jesus saying? The book of Exodus was written about me. So was the book of Genesis. So was the book of Malachi. All of scripture is written about Jesus. I don't know if you remember, but when I started the study through John two years ago, on January 9th, 2022, I made this statement. I can't wait to study John because we'll be talking about Jesus each and every week. Does anybody remember me saying that? I can't wait to study John because we'll be talking about Jesus each and every week. But I want to make another statement today. I can't wait to study Exodus because we'll be talking about Jesus each and every week because Jesus is the hero of the story. And so with that as introductory information about the whole book of Exodus and the grid through which we'll be going to be interpreting the book of Exodus, let's read the whole first chapter together. This is the inspired, inerrant word of the Lord. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall lives, live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, I'm going to begin, and the bulk of my message today will be the exposition of this chapter. 
In this chapter, I just have two main points I want us to consider together as we think through what is retold here under the inspired pen of Moses. But also, as this is the vision message for 2024, and I believe even beyond, I'm going to try to extrapolate out some application points, particularly for our congregation that are birthed right out of the truths in this text. Well, the first main point I want to share with you is this. I want us to consider the purposes of God are greater than death. The purposes of God are greater than death. One of the themes that was introduced in the book of Genesis and now continues in the book of Exodus is the theme of death. God says to the man and to the woman, if you eat of the fruit of the tree, you shall surely die. And what did they do? They ate of it. And what happened? They died. And you even see throughout the history and throughout the genealogies and throughout the listing of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, their each individual story will end, and he died. Methuselah, he died. They all died. Death is a dominant theme, not just in the book of Genesis, but throughout the Bible. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And we see this theme of death even come into the first pages, the first verses of the book of Exodus. You go down to chapter uh, 1, verse 6, and it says, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the purposes of God are greater than death. Now, there's something that happens with death that we see from this passage we just read. Two realities I want to point out. First of all, death brings forgetting. Death with it brings forgetting. Verse 8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Joseph was forgotten. The entire generation of Joseph is gone. They've been dead for over 300 years, and the people of that present day forgot about Joseph. I remember hearing a humorous story about the president of Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Dr. Albert Moeller. Dr. Albert Moeller is a renowned scholar, and beyond that, he is a very fastidious student of Western civilization. And he particularly has interest in one figure in Western civilization, and that is Sir Winston Churchill. Uh, Dr. Moeller, as such, has a vast collection of Winston Churchill memorabilia and items and artifacts. And in fact, sitting on his desk, you see there a bust of Winston Churchill sitting prominently. When prospective students come to Southern Seminary for a tour, one of the great benefits of the tour usually is you get to go meet Dr. Moeller in his home residence and go down to his basement, which is a vast library with thousands and thousands of volumes. And you get to walk around his library with him. On one particular occasion, a prospective student saw this bust on Dr. Moeller's desk and said, who's this guy? <laughs> and Dr. Moeller said, uh, that's Winston Churchill. Oh yeah? What did he do? And Dr. Moeller said, well, he saved Western civilization. <laughs> it is unthinkable that a prospective graduate student would not know, one, who Winston Churchill is or what he did. But even more unthinkable that someone in Egypt would not know Joseph. Why? Because Joseph 
saved Egyptian civilization. 300 years before this Pharaoh ever existed, there was a great famine in the land, and Joseph, through his wisdom, through his inspiration, through his dreams, through the power and grace of God, saved Egypt and elevated them to being the dominant superpower in the world. All because of Joseph. You move forward 300 years later, and they have completely forgotten about Joseph. By the time you get to chapter 1, verse 8, Who's Joseph? Who is this guy? Now, granted, he had been dead for over 300 years, but there are some people who should never be forgotten. Winston Churchill, Joseph. But the reality is, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what type of contribution you've made in your time of living. You will one day, listen to me, be forgotten. Within a generation from now, no one will remember you. Isn't that good news on this first Sunday in January? Don't believe me. Believe the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's what he wrote. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. Friend, it doesn't matter if you're wise or if you're a fool. It doesn't matter if you make a big contribution to the world or a minuscule contribution or no contribution. There's coming a day when Solomon says, not only are you going to be forgotten, you're going to be long forgotten. Nobody's going to remember you. None of your statements, none of your uh, contributions are going to be remembered. Joseph, incredible leader, forgotten. Everything that Joseph had accomplished, they were standing on that foundation that day. The civilization they enjoyed as the world superpower was because of Joseph. And even the Pharaoh, the leadership, forgot Joseph. We do battle with death every day, don't we? We try to hold it off. We try to keep it away. Here this second week of the new year, many of you have made New Year's resolutions, most of which I would say were enacted to try to Keep death at bay as long as possible. But try as you may, you're going to die. And shortly after you die, you will be forgotten. Not just forgotten, but long forgotten. Let me illustrate this point. I love this church. In my 17th year, I love this church. I love the people of this church. I love the ministry of this church. I love the elders and the deacons and the small group leaders of our church. I love the particular ethos and feel of our church. I love this building. I love this pulpit. This building that we are enjoying today was commenced to be built in October of 1961. And I would venture a guess that 99.5% of the people in this room cannot name a single member of the building committee when this building was built. Nor could you name the pastor who was here in 1961. They're dead, and they're forgotten. But are we enjoying the benefit of their sacrifice? Absolutely. And I believe with all my heart in 2024, we're going to commence as a body on some initiatives that we may not enjoy the benefit of, 
We're going to plant a tiny oak that one day others will sit in the shade of. We will be forgotten, but may our influence and our impact and our investments long outlive us. This is what we see happening here with Joseph and with his generation. But a question, did death win? No, death did not win. You know why? Because the purposes of God are greater than death. And the promises of God are not slowed down. They're not stopped by any one person's demise. You see, in spite of the fact that Joseph is dead and gone, as, all of, uh, as much as he could do with all of his gifts, 300 years later, he couldn't do anything for the people of Israel. He's gone. But the promises of God are still remaining. Why? Because God remains faithful. God remains faithful. I saw some smiles. You guessed that word, didn't you? I love it when I see that. Try to guess my words beforehand. God remains, it's pretty easy if you know alliteration. God remains faithful. He does. Look at verse seven. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Joseph's dead, but the promises of God are completely alive because God remains faithful. Now, what I want us to see particularly here is the really the big picture. Now, I understand that your death is significant to you, <laughs> but in the big picture of things, God's purposes will march on without you and certainly without me. God will continue. Why? Because God remains faithful. In fact, I want you to notice this. The very same Moses that wrote the book of Exodus also wrote this. Look at Psalm chapter 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Moses in this Psalm says, it's a good thing to remember you're gonna die. It's a good thing to number your days. It's a good thing to remember that when your number comes up, it's over. Why? Because you will gain a heart of wisdom. The wisdom is you'll not live for things that are passing. You'll live for those things that last. God remains faithful. His kingdom keeps on marching on. Why? Because the purposes of God are greater than death. Here's the second big point I want us to consider this morning. The Pharaoh of Egypt is defeated by the divine. The Pharaoh of Egypt is defeated by the divine. Now, before I develop this point, I want to explain to you who the teams are that are on the playing field in the book of Exodus. It's not really a match between Egypt and Israel. It's not a match between Pharaoh and Moses. It's not, it's not even a match between the Egyptian people and the Hebrew people. You see, if it were, there would be no contest. I love the way Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, it is very clear that had the contest been merely between Pharaoh and Israel, the Egyptian king could exercise power and policy enough to defeat the sons of Jacob and reduce them to serfdom. But when a new name is brought in and the contest appears to be truly between Pharaoh and Jehovah, the God of Israel, it is quite another matter. But even at that, Mr. Spurgeon, the bottom line contest is not even between Pharaoh and Jehovah. It's between 
the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This has always been the battle. The battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. What am I talking about? Where does that come from? It comes from the book of Genesis as well, Genesis 3.15. It says this, I will put enmity, hostility, between you, serpent, God speaking to the serpent and his curse, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is known as the first gospel, the first promise of deliverance of sin-ridden humanity, that the descendant of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. Yes, the serpent would bruise his heel. This refers to the cross where Jesus died, but Satan, he's going to crush your head. He's going to take you out. This is a battle ultimately between God and Satan, between good and evil. And the player on the playing field in Exodus for evil is Pharaoh. He's the player on the playing field for evil. And guess what? He loses. He loses. And he loses not because he didn't try. He loses not because he didn't give his, his best effort. He loses not because he went down without a fight. No, he fought tooth and nail, but he loses nonetheless. I want you to consider just how he fought and how he resisted God over and over again through what I'm calling the plan of evil, the plan of evil. Here in chapter one, we see even in this first Pharaoh, uh, he had a four-part strategy, a four-part plan of evil. I want you to see what they were. Part one, he's going to work the Hebrew people hard. Part two, he's going to work the Hebrew people even harder as slaves. Part three, he's going to command the Hebrew midwives to kill the Hebrew male infants at birth. Part four, that didn't work out. He instructs all of Egyptians. Every Egyptian citizen is deputized by Pharaoh. You have the authority, Egyptian citizens, to cast any Jewish male infant into the Nile River to drown. Is this evil? Yes, it is. The question here I have about part three and part four is why? Why kill the Hebrew males? Why kill the, the baby boys? Well, a couple of reasons we can think of. One, the, the boys represented the potential military might of the Hebrew people. You kill off a generation of males, they don't have the ability to fight in war. Further, you kill off a generation of males. The females are now forced to amalgamate into Egyptian culture, and the entire Hebrew nation is gone. This is a very politically shrewd move by Pharaoh. And further, it is Satan, don't forget this, who is inspiring Pharaoh to do these things. These are satanic things that Pharaoh is attempting. Why would Satan inspire Pharaoh to kill all the baby boys? Genesis 3.15. He's trying to get rid of any seed of the woman that might possibly crush his head. If I can get rid of any of these male descendants of the woman, if I can get rid of any of these male descendants of the Hebrew people, then I'm getting rid of the opportunity for them to crush me. You may remember, you moved in Matthew chapter 1, chapter 2. You find in chapter 3, you find the, the Herod, the king of the Jews. He was paranoid when he heard about this baby king who was born. And what did he do? Same thing. He was inspired by Satan to take all the Hebrew baby boys, two years and younger, in Bethlehem and around Bethlehem, 
to be slaughtered. It was, it's called the slaughter of the innocents, a very real event in history. Why? Well, Herod was paranoid. Why did Pharaoh do it? Pharaoh was paranoid. Well, why did they do it? Because Satan was paranoid. <laughs> I got to get rid of these boys because that will do, be my undoing. Not only that, though, Pharaoh actually perceives himself to be God. He was told that. They believed that their king, they believed that their Pharaoh was a descendant of the sun god. That's, for instance, whenever Moses comes to Pharaoh a generation later, a different Pharaoh than this one in chapter one, and says, let my people go, that Pharaoh says, who am I that I should listen to your God? I'm God. I don't need to listen to your God. So Pharaoh is executing, executing his plan of evil. But I want you to notice this next part, the power of God. The power of God. I mentioned the match is really God versus Satan, God versus evil. In the book of Exodus, we're going to see them battle. We're going to see them go head to head. And I think the most fascinating thing about this passage is that everything Pharaoh tries not only fails, but it backfires on him. All the evil he attempts, God says, oh, you're trying that? Let me twist it and turn it for my benefit. It's incredible. You know, I love the sport of wrestling, and I couldn't help but think of this illustration uh, as I was thinking about this. Uh, some of you have probably heard of Dan Gable. Dan Gable is the greatest Olympic champion in United States wrestling history. In 1972, he won the Olympic Games. He was the gold medalist, but get this, he won the Games without having a single point scored against him. No one has ever done that, but Dan Gable did it. And here's what Dan Gable says. This was his philosophy in wrestling. I shoot, I score. You shoot, I score. It's pretty good philosophy. What does that mean? When I go on the offense, I'm going to take you down. When you go on the offense, I'm going to take you down. And he had the medal to prove it. And I thought, this is exactly what's happening here to an infinitely greater degree. Every time Pharaoh shot, God says, oh, you're shooting? Guess what? I'm going to score. And he does it again and again. I saw one commentator that I read put it like this. Pharaoh seems on this occasion to have been a few bricks shy of a pyramid. <laughs> Nothing he's doing is working. I want us to walk through the text real quickly and see how Pharaoh shot and God scored. Look at verse 6. We saw this already. Then Joseph died. Oh, no. Verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. You shoot, I score. Look at the next one, verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. But in the very next verse, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. You shoot, Pharaoh, I'm going to score. Next one, the ladies... When you serve as a midwife, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But the next verse, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them and let the male children live. You shoot, I score. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 22 ends with something of a morose tone. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. That's how the chapter ends. And it seems tragic. Oh, no. What's going to happen? Well, how does chapter 2 begin? A baby, Hebrew, male, 
was thrown into the Nile River, but he wasn't thrown in naked. He was thrown in in a basket. And what happened? Well, his basket floated down the Nile, and it was discovered by who? Of all people, Pharaoh's daughter. And Moses' sister sees Pharaoh's daughter, retrieve the basket out of the water, and she goes up and has this great idea. Hey, how about if I go find one of these Hebrew women, one of these moms whose children have been cast into the Nile to come and nurse your baby? Sure. So she goes and gets Moses' mom. And Moses' mom moves in with Pharaoh to nurse Moses, and she gets paid for it. Who could design such a thing? God. You shoot, guess what? I'm going to score. God takes the adversity and the difficulty. And the great irony here is that in Egypt, Pharaoh had all the authority. Pharaoh had all the power. Pharaoh had the position, yet he cannot get anything to work in his favor. Why? Because of the power of God. Why is that? Why is this the case? Well, the psalmist told us why in in Psalm chapter 2. He said this, why do the nations rage? That's exactly what Egypt was doing. And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. How does God respond? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. In other words, we who want to rule our own kingdoms, we who want to be the potentate of our vast domains, when we say, I will not submit to God's rule, I will not succumb to his authority, you know what God does? He laughs. You think you're going to rule? You think you have authority in your life? (laughs) That's hilarious. The Lord holds them in derision. If you rebel at God, you shake your fist at God, you say, I will not have you rule over me, I will be my own king, God finds that incredibly funny. So what does God do here? He takes the evil actions of Pharaoh and he subjects them to his own eternal power, his own eternal purpose, for his own eternal glory, and get this, for the good of his covenant people. For the good of of his covenant people. We could look around our world today and we could say, oh my goodness, this place is going to hell in a handbasket. And it is. We could look at this world today and say, man, there's so many evil people in the world doing so many evil, unspeakable things. What are we going to do? And the reality is not lost on me that 2024 is a presidential election year. Oh, boy. And even as we move forward towards the election, we can have all kinds of what-ifs and what-abouts. And I'm so thankful we're going to be studying Exodus in 2024. I don't know if you remember when we studied Genesis. It was in 2020. Another election year. Little did I know in January of 2020 all that was going to come down the pipeline. All the craziness, all the insanity, all the things that bifurcated our society into factions and wars. But I want you to see what we considered the very last time we were in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50, 
Here's what Joseph says. He's speaking. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Friends, I don't know what 2024 holds, but I know who holds 2024. I don't know what's going to happen with this next election cycle. And you know what? It's not as consequential as knowing God is in control. God is powerful. God says, I'm going to take all the evil that will befall my covenant people and I will turn it for my glory and I will turn it for my good. Well, that's just a casual reflection on Exodus chapter one. But I want us to consider as we close some timely and I believe relevant application points that the Lord has impressed particularly on my part as we in the days to come are moving forward. Now these things uh, that I'm going to talk about now, these are kind of the big ideas. Come back Wednesday. I forgot to say this when I made the announcement earlier. Even if you're not a member of Lookout Valley Baptist Church, if you're just visiting here, you're just checking things out, we want you here because we want you to know where we believe the Lord is leading us and taking us. So come Wednesday night for the ribs and for our time together as our long-range planning team puts a a much finer point on some of these applications I'm going to consider. But moving forward, we need to, number one, invest into the permanent. This needs to be a priority, that we invest into that which is permanent. Where do I get this application principle from? Joseph died and was forgotten. Joseph did all these things, not only for the Jews, not only for his family, but for the Egyptian people. He elevated all of culture through his decisions and through his work, yet he was long forgotten. You will be forgotten. I will be forgotten. All of us will. So what does that mean? Think of all of the resources God has entrusted to you, not just financial, but financial, but your time, your experiences, your talents, your giftedness, your resources of of your vocation. Should we invest those things into what is going to burn up like wood, hay, and stubble? Or should we invest in those things that are going to last, like gold, silver, and precious stones? We're all familiar with the instructions from the Lord in his Sermon on the Mount, but it's always good to be reminded. Jesus says to the disciple, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, but where th- and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As we look forward, as we move forward in 2024, we as individuals and we collectively as a church, we've got to assess how we are utilizing those things God has entrusted to us to manage and to steward. Ultimately, you don't own anything. God owns it all, and he's just entrusted you to manage it. Are we investing into that which is permanent? Here's the second reality. Families are pivotal. I didn't comment on this in the message, in the exegesis of the passage, but the chapter began by a listing of all of Abram's descendants through Jacob, Jacob and his sons, and they were divided into these family groups, to the tribes. 
And those family groups, 300 some odd years later, are still identifiable among the Hebrew people in bondage and captivity in Egypt. Of course, Pharaoh wanted to completely wipe out those family groups. He wanted to decimate the males, but by God's providence, each and every one of those families were rescued. In fact, another interesting thing, I don't know if you caught it or not, is in verse 21 of the chapter. Notice what it says. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. If you feared God, what kind of a gift would you want from God? God says, the greatest gift I can give you is a family. He gave these brave women families. And so as we look into 2024, we want to make this same declaration that we believe family is pivotal. That family is the foundational building block of society. Would you agree with me that the family unit as God designed it is under attack today? Do you agree with that? Of course it is. So what do we need to do as a church? Strengthen families. Strengthen the family unit. How are we going to do that? Well, you hear some of that uh, on Wednesday, but through initiatives and emphases like uh, helping parents be better parents, help husbands be better husbands, help wives be better wives, help kids be better better kids. We want to have an emphasis on growing and developing godly, biblical families. Families are pivotal. Here's the next application point. Sacrifice will be personal. As Pharaoh, the embodiment of evil, sought to destroy the covenant people of God, the Hebrew midwives made a very personal sacrifice of their own necks. They disobeyed the one with ultimate power in their, home, in their land of Egypt. They risked their lives to accomplish God's greater purposes. With this in mind, not only here among the midwives, but throughout the Bible we see this principle, and throughout ch- church history we see this. Unnamed millions of Christians who have gone before us, who are long forgotten, made immense personal sacrifices to push back darkness and to advance the kingdom of God. And if we would see God do in us and through us all that God would do, it will take personal sacrifice. May mean sacrificing some of your time to volunteer in an area of ministry in our church. May mean a sacrifice of resources to rearrange your budget so that you can financially give to some type of ministry. Sacrifice will be personal. Here's the fourth one. Children are prized. One of the fundamental truths that we came around as a long-range planning team was that we as a church need to prize value children. Children. And we see them as precious and important, of great worth and dignity. The Hebrew midwives made their personal sacrifice because they understood the value of each and every one of those individual Hebrew baby boys. They understood their inherent worth and their dignity. So as we enter 2024, We want to ramp up, we want to shore up our ministry to children, preschool children, elementary children, youth, students, teenage children, because children are to be prized. 
We're to value children. We want to welcome children. We want people who, when they say something about Lookout Valley Baptist Church, what do you know about that church down the road? I don't know much, but I do know this. They loved kids. They love children. Last November, our church adopted a budget for 2024. It's a faith budget. It's an aggressive budget. It's one where God's going to have to do it. And in that budget, one of the things we transitioned to was we moved Chantel Bedrin, our children's director, from part-time status to full-time status. That's necessary. And that's just one way where we're putting our money where our mouth is that we say we value children. We prize children. Here's the fifth application point. Community is a priority. Now, when I say community, I'm not talking about our neighborhood particularly. I'm not talking about our zip code particularly, though we do value and see our neighborhood as a priority. We'll look at that in the next point. But I'm talking about our church community. I'm talking about this family of faith, welcome home, our spiritual family, that our community is to be a priority among us, pressing into that community. Here's what I know. The people of the book of Exodus, the people of God in the book of Exodus, they were called out by God. We'll see that in the months to come. They were called out and they were delivered by God. Now here's what I also know. If you're here this morning, you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. Here's what I know. Look at this next slide. You have the calling of God on your life. Friends, it's not just preachers who are called out by God. It's not just ministers or deacons or elders or associate pastors or staff members or missionaries. Every believer in Jesus has the calling of God on their life. So the question is, how do you live out that calling within the context of Christian community? See, it's within the context of Christian community, the people in this room that you learn, one, how God has called you, and then two, very areas where you can plug in and live out that calling of faith. And that leads to the final application I really want us to consider. And this, even though it's sixth, it's the most important. The gospel is preeminent. The gospel is preeminent. I don't know if you know or not, when we go into the book of Exodus, Pharaoh, he ain't saved. <laughs> He's lost. Lost as Hogan's goat, as they say. I don't know who Hogan is or who his goat is, but that's how lost Pharaoh is. Why was he lost? Because he was the king of his own universe. He was the lord of his own domain. And that is exactly the condition of every person apart from a relationship with Jesus. The reason I'm getting emotional is because yesterday I met a new neighbor who is lost. I came home and talked to me about it. We started naming our neighbors across the road, three doors down, right beside us, catty corner to us, lost. Do you know there's lostness in this zip code? Deep, deep lostness. Do you know that in Chattanooga, the most Bible-minded city in America, there is great lostness? This is why the gospel must be preeminent. Because there is no salvation apart from Jesus. 
And I've got to love my neighbors, the cohabitating neighbors, the homosexual couple neighbors, because they need Jesus. The gospel has got to be preeminent. And in all these initiatives and more, the heartbeat of our church, listen, is that we are gospel-centered. We interpret and we uh, evaluate everything we do as a church through the gospel, that Jesus is the true and eternal king of the universe. We evaluate everything we do through the principles and the promises that though we were created by a holy God, we've all broken his commands. And we've sought to rule our own little universe by our own selves and be the kings of our own thrones. But God, through Jesus, out of a heart of love and mercy and grace, stepped off his throne of heaven and took on human flesh. He lowered himself not only to human form, but to the point of a servant, taking upon himself the punishment and the, the guilt for your sin. And on the third day, he was resurrected from the dead. And 40 days later, he was ascended back to heaven to resume his rightful place on the throne. And he's coming again one day. And the question is this. Is he your king? The question this morning is, he your savior? It is this gospel message, the life death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that must be brought to bear on everything we do because this is the cause and the purpose to which we are called. Jesus told us, go into all the world, to our neighbors, to the nations, and proclaim the gospel. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is the commission our king has laid before us and it is a grace gift that he has considered us at all. We're gonna move to a time of decision in just a moment, a time of response. And I want us to just um, respond maybe a little differently than what you may be familiar with or used to or what is our custom here. I don't like to refer to this as an altar because an altar in the Bible is where they sacrifice animals. We're not sacrificing any animals here. These are steps, but it is a good thing to get down on your knees in a posture of humility. And you may want to come to these steps in a posture of humility. And here's what I would ask you to do. That you would just lay your yes down. God, I don't know what 2024 holds. I don't know where you might be calling me. I know I have the calling of God in my life. I don't know what it is you want me to do, but all I'm saying is yes. Yes. You don't have to come here to do that. You may want to do it in your seat. As we sing this last song, you can take whatever posture God calls you to take. If that's standing, if that's sitting, if that's kneeling, you do it. But you come to the Lord, and this, this new year you say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. That leads to my last thought. God will accomplish all his purposes according to his good pleasure. And he invites us to join him in the process. Let's go to him in prayer.